Well, thank you, uh, Terry, for reading that. Appreciate those words. As you can see, we have uh, some interesting psalms in front of us. I want to warn you right off the bat that unlike what I have done in the past and unlike what uh, Jim does so well every Sunday where he leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ at the end of a sermon, uh, this morning, because we're going to follow the psalms, we're going to end in a bad place. And you heard, uh, you should have been able to hear that at the end of what Terry read. Uh, the psalmist is, uh, feels very rejected and uh, still is in the throes of death. And so I'm going to leave you there uh, this morning. And we're also going to start in death um, and before we get to some good news in Psalm 87 and early in 89. Well, I don't know exactly where you're from, and I don't know exactly if you have these little animals uh, where you're from that are black with a white stripe uh, down the back. Uh, We call those skunks. And here in North Carolina, we hardly ever smell a skunk. I mean, on occasion, on rare occasions, out somewhere out in the country, we might smell something uh, that smells a little bit like skunk. But in Kansas, we had these all over. They were as common in Kansas as, as the deer or squirrels are here. And so uh, very often on a daily basis, we would smell skunks uh, as we drove to school or as we uh, went out into the woods, which is, you know, all there is in Kansas, of course. But uh, we would smell these skunks. And I remember the time growing up when I was a young boy, my brothers, uh, my two older brothers were big trappers. They would trap things like coyotes uh, and raccoons for their furs. And they would do this before they would go to school. So on one occasion, my brother, my, the brother immediately older than I, I was, his name was Trent. He was the big trapper of the family. And he had set this trap right outside our barn uh, that was a couple miles away from our house. But he would go check it before school. And the trap was set near a hole because, again, the animals are bur- burrowing underneath the barn. And, of course, that would, that would be where he would catch them. And then, again, he would have the fur. And uh, so he went to uh, fetch this one animal. He could see that the trap was set. Uh, He could see that the animal, even though it had been caught in the trap, had burrowed underneath and was underneath the uh, barn. So you can imagine what he did. Uh, He yanked on the chain that was attached to the trap, that was attached to the foot, that was attached to the animal. And lo and behold, what did he get? But he got a skunk. And the skunk sprayed him. Uh, Now, again, I don't know if you've... uh, Some of you have probably experienced this up close, but the stench of a skunk, the spray of a skunk is so powerful that it literally can make you sick. It literally can cause you to throw up, not because it's necessarily poisonous, but because the stench is just so strong. It's stronger than anything else you can imagine. Moreover, you know that once you are sprayed, the smell is there. Right. Uh, you can wash with tomato juice. I've heard this works a little bit. Toothpaste, mayonnaise, you know, uh, laundry detergent, whatever it is, the, the smell is there. As a matter of fact, the smell is there until the body does its natural regeneration of skin cells where the cells die off and then new cells replace them. So in, literally until your, skunk, uh, your, your skin kind of turns over, that smell of skunk is on you. Well, today we are going to see, and I think we already kind of know this innately, we see that the stench of death 
is with us. The stench of death is with us. In a sense, we're, we're even us who are Christians, but humanity for sure, is like someone who has been sprayed with skunk. Only the spray is this stench of death. It's this, it's this death. It's the sin of Adam and Eve which plunged all humanity into death. And it is ever-present regardless of things that we might do religiously or morally or uh, with our different acts, the stench of death remains with, with us. We cannot overstate the significance upon our lives of Adam and Eve's disobedience and then even the resulting sin of our own that continues to plunge us into death. We could call it death which we all have experienced or will experience. We know that 100% of us will die. We have known people. Maybe it's your grandparents, your parents, maybe even a child or a friend has experienced death. But it's not just death that, that uh, comes from Adam and Eve's disobedience. No, it's sin. It's rebellion. It's that nagging feeling of inadequacy. It's this feeling of inadequacy that you experience and that causes you maybe to want a better house. Maybe it causes you to manipulate with your words. Maybe it causes you to be insecure and to worry. Maybe it brings depression. It's the sin of lust, rebellion, manipulation, slander, hatred, things that we all feel and struggle with, even those of us who have born and been born anew into Christ Jesus, we still experience this death. Sometimes we see it and confess and turn away from our sins. Sometimes we don't even see it. And for those of us who are not in Christ, they don't even see it. This death that we experience. Anything that we put our identity or our security in other than our creator is the result of this disobedience and death that was first brought about by our ancestors, Adam and Eve. So this morning we will be reminded of this death as we work our way through the Psalter. Psalm 87, 88, and 89. Well, Jim has mentioned several times as he's preached through the Psalms uh, the importance of the sequence of these chapters. Now, uh, we don't uh, often think of this uh, in, in, as we read the Psalms. We might think of them maybe as a hymn book of ancient Israel. And you know, if we opened up a Baptist hymn book, we don't use hymn books anymore, but uh, if we opened up a Baptist hymn book, you might read or sing uh, hymn 89, and then you could read hymn 90. And again, they're, they're not going to have anything to do with one another, maybe. They might relate to some sort of uh, common topic, but again, they're not really meant to be read together or sung together. And we often think of the psalm book like this. Or we might think of the psalm book really just as psalms from David, which they are, but that's not all they are. Of course, they relate to David's life, the historical David, but is that all they are? And again, we sometimes preach these psalms as if it is merely David speaking and we have to learn from David's life so that we can kind of do what David did, whether that's a good thing like confess our sin or whether it's uh, something else that we might not want to emulate. 
like praying for the deaths uh, of our enemies' children, something that David does in the Psalter. Well, we're going to look at why these are intentionally ordered ever so briefly. We won't go into all the evidence, but I want us just to see very quickly that we can see from the superscription, that is probably verse zero uh, in your English Bible, we can see from the superscription that these three psalms were tied together. Now, again, there's other evidence. I'm not going to go into that for the sake of time, but I just want us to see that whoever put these psalms together wanted us to read them together. Whoever put this in a book wanted us to read these three psalms together. And we see that, uh, Psalm 87, I'm just reading uh, straight from the Hebrew order here, to the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. Again, this is a typical superscription. They're called superscription, these little verse zeros. Typical superscription it is here. And then in Psalm 88, we see this reversed. It's the exact reversal, a song, a psalm to the sons of Korah. Well, a lot of times this reversal and this kind of, as you can see here, this kind of cross pattern indicates, again, something that has been put together by an author so that we read them together. And that's exactly what he's done here. But Psalm 88 actually continues. It says several things here and ends with a maskil, uh, whatever that is. Nobody knows for sure. It's some sort of poem or song. A maskil to Haman the Ezraite. By the way, Terry did a great job reading these names. It's wonderful. Uh, so here we see this at the end of Psalm 88, which is the longest superscription in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and then we see Psalm 89, which is the exact thing that we see at the end of Psalm 88, which uh, other than Haman, it is to Ethan. So again, the reason why Psalm 88 is so long is it's, bec- it's put Psalm 87 there, and then it's also put Psalm 89 up into 88. So it's very long and again, meant to bring these three Psalms together. Now, there is other evidence that uh, this is uh, intentionally ordered at the end of what they call book two, uh, book three of the Psalter, but again, we won't go into that. We should ask the question, though, why are these three psalms put together? So today, we'll proceed in five, movement, five movements through these psalms. First of all, we're going to talk about birth from Psalm 87. Second, we're going to look at death from Psalm 88. The first part uh, that we saw in Psalm 89 will give us uh, the covenant with David, my anointed. David, my anointed. The fourth will be from the end of Psalm 89, rejection, shame, and death. And finally, we'll have one quick movement at the very end of Psalm 89, blessed be the Lord. So let's return to Psalm 87. Listen again to Psalm 87, verses 3 and following. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I shall mention Rahab, Babylon, among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. This one was born there. And of Zion it is said... This one and that one are born in her. The Most High himself will do this. The Lord will count when he writes the peoples, this one was born there. Then those who sing when they dance, all my springs are in you. Now, just again, quickly, we might note here that from this psalm, it's not only Jerusalemites, right? Zion is, in a sense, uh, Jerusalem. But notice here that it's not only Jerusalem. 
who will be born. Also, it's not just Jerusalem or Israel, but there's actually the enemies of Israel are literally born in Zion and will be established by God himself. Verse 4, we see Rahab, Babylon. Again, this is Israel's arch enemy, the ones who destroyed Israel uh, in the 6th century B.C. Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia. You know Tyre is an enemy of Israel. Philistia as well was David's arch enemy in the book of Samuel and Kings. But it's these who will actually know God. In verse 4, among those who know me. How is it that these uh, nations, these Gentile nations, can know God and be born in Zion? Well, three times Psalm 87 says that the peoples will be birthed in this city of God, meaning that they will be naturalized citizens of Zion. Why? Because it is God himself who literally births these foreign nations into his city, the city of Zion. The most high God is the one who will establish this, verse 5, seven, uh, verse five says. So three times we see this word birthed, and not only that, we actually could see something in 87.7 uh, in, in the translation of the English. It says, then those who sing when they dance will say, or at least the English ads will say, quote, all my kind of foundations or springs are in you. But I thought it's interesting, this word dance can actually have another meaning. It can actually mean writhe in birth pangs. It's used often to writhe in birth pangs. Matter of fact, I think I gave us a, a little excerpt from one of the dictionaries of the Hebrew Bible, and you can see here, this is this word uh, translated probably dance uh, in your version. I looked at the different versions. Uh, most of them said dance. I think there was one other one that... Uh, that used a different sort of celebration. But we can see here, the number one is dance. Again, this is just right from the dictionary. Uh, and then we see number two means to twist or writhe. And then A, it says in pain, especially in childbirth. So again, even this uh, last verse of Psalm 87 indicates that there's going to be singing about this one who uh, gives birth to his children uh, and they will be singing even as they are giving birth or even as they are writhing in pain, that is the pain of childbirth, they will sing all my springs or all my foundations, all my life comes from you, Psalm 87. So immediately Psalm 87 sets a bit of a universal or international tone here to this Psalter. This is not just Jerusalem or Israel. No, this is, again, these other nations, these other Gentile nations. Moreover, we don't have to think very far to think of Ezekiel 36 or John 3, right, where Jesus says, you must be born again. Peter, James, all mention this idea of this rebirth for the children of God. And here we see it first in Psalm 87, the Lord will birth his people. It is the Lord Yahweh who will, bring, who will bring forth, who will birth his people in Zion, God's eternal city. Well, Psalm 87 then, of course, is connected to Psalm 87 via this superscription. Psalm 88 answers the question, 
How will people be born? How will Yahweh, how will the Most High give birth to Ethiopia and to, to uh, Philistia, to Tyre, to Babylon? How will he give birth? Well, apparently, birth can only come through death. Through death. And I want us to hear again the, the death. And as I mentioned early on this morning, I'm really going to leave us uh, in the throes of death. Because in a certain sense, it is where we live life. But listen again to Psalm 88. O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of literally evils. My life draws near. It touches Sheol. Sheol is literally the place of the grave in the Hebrew Bible. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who, who has uh, no, no life or no strength. I'm literally set free among the dead. I am like those who lay in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more because they are cut off from you. They're cut off from your hand. You, Lord, have put me in the pit, in the depths of the pit, in the regions that are dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your ways. You have caused my friends to shun me. You've made me a whore to them. I'm shut in. I cannot escape. The psalmist here is literally in the grave. My eyes grow dim. Every day I call to you. I stretch out my hands. And then he asks this question, will you do or will you work a wonder for the dead? Do the departed souls rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Again, the writer here, the psalmist is in the grave. He is dead. Will your wonder be known in darkness, your righteousness in the land of forgiveness? The writer of the psalm is in the grave. His life has left him. He's in the pit, in the shadows of death. He cannot escape. It holds him in. Eleven actually says he's in the grave. Again, apparently birth cannot come but through death. Verse 8 says all of his companions have left him. Now, at this point, we should be asking, okay, who is speaking this? Is this David? Is this only referencing the historical David? We know, of course, David experienced some things like this, although he was never in the grave, the historical David. So who is this? Who is this referring to? Well, we might again remember that this, uh, this passage, this psalm, and these three psalms are, again, in a larger book of psalms. David wrote some of these psalms, but David did not, didn't write all the psalms. We know some of the psalms were written by Hezekiah or uh, Moses. Some of them were written by Hezekiah. And we certainly don't know who put the psalm, to, psalm book together. The psalm book together, or the psalm book, was, of course, put together sometime during the exile or in, in post-exile. That means after Jerusalem was destroyed because it talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in different psalms. So we know that the book was put together long after David's life. If you think about David's life, David was roughly in the year 1000, and he died right around then. And then his son Solomon 
took the throne. And of course, Solomon died. And then, of course, Solomon's sons divided the kingdom. They died. And then again, we see in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles that king after king after king sinned and died. And so we're at the end of that in the exile or post-exile where somebody's putting this book together using these psalms that originally were written about David. So who is speaking in the psalm? Well, just turn briefly to Psalm 89. Look at Psalm 89 just ever so briefly. We'll come back to it in a moment, but we're not finished with 88. But Psalm 89 verses 3 says, uh, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I, verse 4, I will establish your offspring forever. Build your throne for all generations. Here, David, or the psalmist, is speaking of the covenant that Yahweh made with David, which, again, we'll return to momentarily. But look at the end of Psalm 89. The end of Psalm 89. Here is where we see that this is somebody besides David himself He says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. So here then, the I, the first person I in verse 50, is none other than the anointed of Yahweh, who also, of course, speaks of David. So we'll return again to this when we get to Psalm 89, but the anointed one is none other than the Messiah, which is, of course, what uh, anointed means. So we can see that in Psalm 88, the anointed one, the Messiah, is in the grave. He has experienced a death. His friends have left him. He is alone. And I want us to consider carefully what he is asking and what he is pondering. Look at verse 11 and 13. I'm sorry, verse 10 and 12 of Psalm 88. Verse 10, will you work a wonder? Note that word, wonder. Will you work a wonder for the dead? Again, he is dead. He's in the grave. He says, do the departed ones rise up to praise you? Look at verse 12. Will your wonder, same word, this wonder be known in the darkness? The word wonder here is the same word that's used somewhat rarely in the Old Testament uh, that, is, that refers to the miracles of the Exodus. Exodus 15:11, the writer of Exodus says, "You have in, in the song song of Moses, the song of Miriam, you have done a miraculous deed." If you if you looked it up in your um, in your Bibles, it would probably be translated miraculous deed or miracle. He says, "You have done a miracle when you brought your people through the waters of the Red Sea." They're called miraculous deeds, wonderful deeds. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says of the same thing. He says, this wonderful thing you did in Egypt that you'll do again someday for your people. Psalm 78, right, a little closer to um, our psalm, says this. If you want to flip over to Psalm 78, verses 11 through 15, listen to how this word wonder is used just a few 10 or 11 psalms earlier. Verse 11 of chapter 78 says, they, that is Israel, forgot his deeds, that is Yahweh's deeds, his miracles, 
that he had shown them. And here it is right here in verse 12. He wrought wonders before their fathers. It's actually the word miracles in verse 11. If your version says miracles there, and it's, it's the word wonder in verse 12. He wrought, uh, he wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zone. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. He led them with the cloud by day, the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams of water from the rock. These are the miracles, the wonder that Yahweh did for Israel as they came out of the Exodus. Here then in Psalm 88, the psalmist says, will you do a wonder for the dead? Will you work your wonder for the departed souls? Imagine the Messiah asking this question. We'll return to this later, but imagine him asking this question on the night he was betrayed. Imagine him asking this question as they pounded the nails in his hands and his feet. As he hung on the cross, will you do a wonder for the dead? In our lives, again, the insecurity that you feel the the questions over your work your finances your marriage your parents your children your desire for things not of god will yahweh work a wonder for the dead you see, we, we all live with death every day. We all will face death very soon. And we do know the miracle of resur- the resurrection, and we trust it, but we still face the question of death. The final victory we have not experienced in the way we will Someday, because we still face death. This stench, this skunk smell of our desires, again, for, for lust, our, our feeling of inadequacy where we compare ourselves to our colleagues or our family, this, this desire to manipulate or to have control. We, we, we face it every moment. The question is really not whether you face it or not. The question is whether you realize you face it. Death. Death. Will you work a miraculous deed like the Exodus for the dead? The psalmist asks. Well, Psalm 87 indicates that God will birth his children in his city. Psalm 88 indicates that this will come through a death somehow. And it will be an Exodus-like miracle. So let us turn then to Psalm 89, at least the beginning of Psalm 89. And I want you to see, if you can imagine the Messiah hanging on the cross, I want you to see what his trust must have been in. He says, Psalm 89 begins, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever forever. 
This continues in verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Verse 20. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And again, this is, this, this is the word that, come, that uh, both Messiah and Christ come from. Christ, of course, is the Greek word, and Messiah is this anointing. Verse 21, so that my hand uh, will establish, be established with him, my arm will strengthen him, the enemy will not outwit him, the wicked will not humble him. I will crush his foes before him, strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love will be with him. My, in my name, his horn, and again, another messianic reference, will be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. Listen to this. He will cry to me, you are my father. My God, the rock of my salvation. Verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring will endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon it will be established forever a faithful witness in the skies notice here that david the historical david knew that god had made a covenant with him he actually speaks of this at the end of the book of samuel as he's dying he speaks of this he speaks not of the hope for himself personally but for his household for his dynasty so to speak So this, again, cannot be the historical David who died and was dead and gone and whose kingdom, whose earthly kingdom was left what? In ruins, in the exile. Babylon itself destroyed and took out the throne of David. Destroyed the Jerusalem temple. No, this cannot be the historical David, but... The death of chapter 88 is responded to and confronted with the promise of chapter 89, the Davidic covenant. It should be the actual promise that comforts you. God is still carrying out this exact promise. And when you face the throes of death, you should think of this promise very promise of Yahweh that David's seed will endure as long as the sun and the moon endure. Yahweh will not lie. He has sworn it. Moreover, the anointed one, right, the Messiah, is literally the very son of Yahweh. You heard it in verse 26. He shall cry to me, that is, this anointed one will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I am the firstborn. Verse 27 says that Yahweh will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, we can hear this uh, in, the, in the promise that Yahweh made to David. We could, we could read this in 2 Samuel 7, or it's retold in 1 Chronicles 17. I'll just read it quickly from 1 Chronicles 17. 
I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. Again, this is the promise to David. When your days are fulfilled to lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That would be Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. This then is the promise that one of David's sons would reign forever. The psalmist quotes this in the middle of the future death of the anointed, the Messiah. In the midst of death, he was to hope in this covenant. I want us to think momentarily again about the Messiah as he was hanging on the cross. As his friends, maybe a little bit earlier, as his friend uh, Judas had betrayed him. How much did Jesus know? How much did he experience about his, uh, of his divinity there on earth? You know, scholars debate this. You know, obviously he gave up his omnipresence, right? He gave up his on, uh, omnipresence when he was incarnated in flesh. He was only in this one place. Did he, did he know all of, uh, all of uh, omniscience? Did he have the omniscience when he was in his flesh that he did prior to being in the flesh? And after, as he was uh, resurrected and glorified, how much did he give up? Well, we, don't, we don't really know the answer, but we know he experienced the, the pain and the tribulation, the, the suffering of his physical tribulation. Did he experience the emotional and mental? If he did, he must have had Psalm 89 in mind, the promise to David, his faith had to be in these psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, I will make a covenant with David, with my anointed. Jesus, as he went to the cross, must have had to have had faith. Not unlike you and I will have to have faith. Well, let's consider the fourth movement in these psalms. The fourth movement of, um, is not a pretty one. After the psalmist reiterates the promise to David, the glorious promise to David, what transpires in the text? We've already heard about the death of Psalm 88. What transpires next? Do we see the heights of glory, maybe the third heavens that Paul saw? Do we see the streets of gold? Is everything perfect? I'm afraid it isn't. Listen to Psalm 89, verses 38 and following. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. The anointed of God faced the wrath of Yahweh. Listen to this. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Again, consider Israel. Consider Israel. In 586 B.C., in 586 B.C., the walls of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem came down. It was burnt. The king, the Davidic king, had his eyes gouged out and his sons, the Davidic sons, put to death. The people of Israel had lost the land. They had lost their land. 
that he first promised to Abraham a land. They had lost the Davidic king, another promise to David and Abraham, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham. They had lost the temple. They had lost the sacrifice. They had lost everything. And here we see it right here in this Psalm 89. But again, this Psalm is referring backwards to this historical destruction likely, but it's also referring to the death and the wrath that the anointed, the Messiah, faced. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighboring nations. Verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. You have made him not stand in battle. You have made his splendor to seize. You have cast his throne throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? Will your wrath burn? Verse 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? O Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart, the Messiah says, the insults, the insults, of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, which which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Notice the covenant seems to have been renounced. The very covenant that we just spoke of seems to have been renounced. Death again grips the anointed one. Again, we can see in these future-looking psalms about the anointed one the history of Jerusalem as it fell to David and Israel's enemies. The temple, the land, the king, the sacrifices. What were they to trust in? They only had the promise to David. What are you trusting in? Again, I want us to see that the psalm, this psalm, these psalms that have been intentionally put together practically ends on the note of death and rejection. It does not end at the highest glory of David's kingdom or of the, even the eternal heavens, the, the streets of gold. That's not where the psalm ends. We do get one last movement where the psalmist says, bless the Lord, but that's it. I think what I want us to experience is the only hope that we have to cling to, and that is the promises that God gave to Abraham, the promises that God gave to David, the promises that God gave to his son, Jesus. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God's blessings, or are you trusting in God's promises? Because regardless whether you're the oldest one here today, or whether you're the youngest one here today, you will experience, and hear me, you will experience death in this life. Even if you don't experience death, maybe Jesus returns, you will experience death or the results of death, the symptoms of death, even yet this afternoon.
I want to end this morning with a story that I uh, began with in the last time I preached from the Psalms. Uh, Maybe one or two of you remember it. This, again, is not a pleasant story, but it is one that we will face. This was uh, in September 8th of several years ago. This was a student that I was praying for at the seminary. He writes, quote, Please be in prayer for my sister, he gives her name, who is battling a very rare form of sarcoma. That was September 8th of this, of a, again, a year, several years ago. He writes, Last month my sister received some really good news. After two chemo treatments over a seven-week span, there had been an 80 to 90% reduction in her tumors, and the insurance company decided to approve the stem cell transplant, which was to take place this coming Friday in St. Louis. However, this past week, she's been dealing with some pain and had to go to the ER last night because it had become unbearable and was coupled with a fever. The scans revealed a large tumor. The doctors running tests to see if this new one or remnants from the previous one is the cause. It looks as though they might have to forego the stem cell procedure until a later date and go ahead with another round of chemo. Please pray that the Lord would give wisdom to the doctors as they decide on a course of action that, would, that the stem cell transplant would remain a possibility. Also pray for my sister that she would remain strong in the Lord and that God would grant her peace that surpasses all understanding. October 15th, so a little over a month later. Today, the doctors in St. Louis will begin the stem cell collection on my sister. They're hoping that they can reach their goal within two to three days. These stem cells will later be put back into her blood to hopefully kickstart her system after some very intense chemo treatments that will basically wipe her out to the point where she will have to be in the hospital for constant monitoring. This is the big experimental treatment that they've been talking about since day one, and we are praying for it to be a success. October 30th. The stem cell collection last week was a success, and they started the transplant the very next day. They gave her six days of high-dose chemotherapy, which is now beginning to take effect on her body. They have her on nausea and pain medication, which cause her to sleep most of the day. Her white blood cell levels have begun to bottom out. And if the stem cells that they put back into her body take hold, they are expecting her levels to begin to rise over the next three weeks. She's looking at a month-long stay in the hospital at St. Louis. My family is taking turns driving up from North Mississippi to to stay with her and give her husband some rest A a week later. Please continue to pray for Daniel's health and recovery and safe travels for my family. God has been so good through all this, and she's coming a long way. The doctor told us back in May that if she made it six months, she was doing really well, even though she wouldn't feel like it. Next month, November, will be the six-month mark, and we're praying that God would continue to allow the treatments to be effective. November 11th, my sister is doing well. She's been released from the hospital in St. Louis, but is having to stay in town a few more days and come in for checkups. Sadly, this great news has been tainted by another tragedy. Early this morning, her house caught on fire and burned to the ground. Thankfully, no one was inside the house as her husband was with her in St. Louis. I know, this, I know they must be extremely discouraged at this news. She needs to keep her spirits up so that her body can continue to fight off cancer cells. Please pray that the Lord would give them peace and fill their hearts with love for him, for all that he has done for them, namely redeeming them with the blood of Christ and rescuing them from sin. December 30th, a month later. Daniel's, uh, my sister's most recent PET scan shows that the cancer has gotten worse, though it's still contained in her abdomen. There is a mass pressing on her intestines, making it difficult for her to hold down food. 
Today she's being admitted to the hospital for a five-day chemo treatment to hopefully shrink the cancer before they try radiation and possibly surgery. It appears that the experimental treatment in St. Louis was unsuccessful. The doctor feels that the chemo is no longer working. Please pray for my family. I was able to spend a lot of time with them over the holidays, and many of them are wrestling with hopelessness and asking the question, why, God? I tried to encourage them with the hope of the gospel, Christ's return, and the fact that she is a believer. January 13, after three days in the hospital, uh, after three days of in-hospital chemo, the doctor stopped treatment because her kidneys were failing to drain properly. Since last Wednesday, they've put a stent in to help, but each time, they've pre- they, each time they've been presented because one of her levels have been too low. Yesterday, the d- doctor decided to call off the surgery altogether. We think, that, we think because her kidneys have improved, but I haven't heard yet for sure. She's unable to hold anything down, any food down, so they've put her on a nutrient drip until they can figure out what's causing the blockage in her intestines. They have her on a lot of pain and nausea meds, which cause her to sleep most of the day. Please pray that God's peace would abound in my soul. Every time I get a phone call from my parents, my heart sinks because I fear it will be more bad news. February 10th. This coming Friday, my sister will go in for surgery to receive hyperthermic intraperitional chemotherapy. Basically, the doctors will remove all visible cancer tissue from her abdomen, pump heated chemo into her abdominal cavity that will instantly kill all cancer cells it comes into contact with. This surgery is expected to take 8 to 10 hours, and they will be removing some of her less vital organs to lower the risk of damage. February 16th. The surgeon was able to remove all of the cancer in Daniel's abdomen. The basketball-sized tumor was wrapped around her small intestine, almost completely blocking it, which is why she's not been able to hold any food down. Now she will be able to eat again. He did have to do a full hysterectomy, but that was always a probability. After the chemotherapy treatment, he went back in to clean everything out and make sure everything was clear. He thinks this will extend her life. As we thank As we thank God for the grace he has shown our family today, we are also praying for his grace to extend to another part of our family. My seven-month-old cousin was taken to the hospital Thursday night, and they are now transferring her to St. Jude, as it appears she has cancer as well. March 23rd. Daniel has been in recovery at the hospital since her surgery. On March 13th, her body had been unable to take food for so long that her intestines became what they call lazy and will now no longer process anything through them. However, thanks be to God, because she's had a good week of eating and keeping the food down, so it looks as though she could finally get to come home today. March 30th, Daniel has had to go back into the hospital due to complications from her surgery. They found a spot on her liver, confirmed that the cancer has already begun to grow back. Her doctor has given her the option of refusing any further treatment, given all that she has gone through, but she wants to keep fighting. The last two treatments they have tried have been the strongest, and so anything from this point on will be a lesser treatment because her body has been through so much she cannot handle any more. We know that God uses suffering for the good of his children as an opportunity for us to give testimony for his goodness and faithfulness to us. We have many family members who are lost, and I know that my sister would pray that God would use her suffering as a catalyst for drawing them unto himself. April 7th. The doctors have called in the family. They almost lost Danielle last night and don't expect her to be with us much longer. My family and I are currently en route via plane to Memphis to be with her during these last hours and to say goodbyes. This is so hard. I will miss her terribly. But I am resting in God's comfort and the hope of eternity and the resurrection. April 8th. 
Danielle was alert when we arrived yesterday, and I wasn't prepared for that, but I'm very thankful. I had some time alone with her for just us to talk. She's afraid. She is afraid of the unknown, of what death will be like. I prayed with her and asked God to remove her fear and to bring her peace and comfort that she would face death well, trusting in her Savior. I prayed that God would continue to use this trial for her good, to conform her more into the image of Christ as she shares in his sufferings and reminded her that she shares in his comfort too. We prayed for our lost family, that the Father would use what she is going through and her demeanor through it all as a testimony and witness to them of his goodness and that they would come to a saving faith in the Lord. Today, I want to comfort her with what the scriptures say concerning death and our future resurrection. Pray for me as I do so that the Father would give me strength and opportunity to do so. April 10th. Danielle has been putting up a tough fight. She's been hanging in there, refusing to close her eyes, but they have had to give her blood, and now they're putting in a catheter and don't expect her to be waking up again. God has been gracious to give me time to talk with her alone, to say goodbye while she's been alert, and to tell her how proud I am of how she has fought this disease and the testimony she has been of our Lord's faithfulness. She's leaving a legacy. She's touched so many lives. And I believe with all my heart that God is using what she is going through to change lives for eternity. I have a very specific prayer request that that I would ask you to pray for. Pray for my cousin, Bob, who isn't a believer. He and my sister are close in age and were very close growing up. He hit a low point last night and was pretty much inconsolable. He doesn't understand why it cannot be him. He's made terrible choices in life, so he's dealing with the guilt, but uh, with how he has lived versus how Danielle has lived. Danielle died the very next day. In this life, we face death. Every one of us will face death. Again, even not the ultimate death. That's not even what I'm talking about. The sin is this stench of death that we must walk in faithfulness through. The Messiah did it because of the promises to David. Psalm 89:52 ends with this very short note. After rejection after shame, after death. One line, blessed be the Lord forever.